So we have just reached Nehemiah chapter 1. That means we just finished Ezra last week, and we're doing a pretty quick overview. If you remember, we're going through Ezra and Nehemiah. Those are the last historical books in the Old Testament, and they cover the three returns of Israel from Babylon back to um, back to Israel, of the Jewish people from Babylon in exile for 70 years back to Israel. Um, and Ezra covers the first two returns, and we also looked at the prophets Haggai and Zechariah because the Lord sent those prophets to speak to his people at that time. And now we've reached Nehemiah, which he covers the third return back to Israel. Um, and the reason I wanted to go through this is because um, we are at a time where the church, I don't know if you noticed, the church is kind of being rebuilt and the church is being renewed. And so I thought it was very appropriate because this is a time in Israel's history where God uh, fulfills one of his promises to his people and he starts to rebuild uh, his, his church, his, well not the church at the time, he starts to rebuild and he starts to renew his people. And I find that really appropriate now, uh, probably more than ever I have in my life because the last 18 months has been very difficult. Uh, the last 18 months... Uh, the church has kind of been shaken a little bit. Um, in the last 18 months, we've really, in a lot of ways, we've been woken up from our slumber. I think we became very complacent. I think the church became very comfortable. Um, and I think the Lord is kind of shaking us awake. And so I think that God is rebuilding His church. I think He's renewing His church. So uh, today we're in Nehemiah. We're just going to go through chapter 1. And I want to look at it. Nehemiah chapter 1. Your Bible probably says Nehemiah's prayer is that... Uh, top part. And so let's start reading through this. I'm going to read through all of chapter 1 first, and then we'll go back and we'll slowly walk through it. So Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men and I questioned him about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps His covenant of love with those who love Him and obey His commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you, day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins of Israel. The sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying... If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength 
in your mighty hand. Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Okay, so that's Nehemiah's prayer. So let's start just in verse 1. What I want to do is I want to look at Nehemiah's prayer. I want to look at some of the contents of his prayer. And and let me say this up front. This is not a, hey, here's a three-step way to get your prayers answered. Okay? Uh, This is not... A, just check these boxes and then Jesus genie in a bottle will do whatever you want to do. Okay, uh, What we're going to look at is we're going to look at his prayer and look at the contents of it and say, man, this is the contents of a great prayer. These, um, we're going to look at some things that his prayer was about, but these are tools, not rules. You follow me? Okay, A relationship is not built on rules. In a relationship, I have lots of tools that I use um, to build my relationship with my wife. One of the tools I use is communication. One of the tools I use um, is uh, emotional intimacy. One of the tools I use is physical intimacy, if you know what I mean. Uh, one of the tools I use is we regularly have date nights. One of the tools I use um, is I regularly pour into, right? Uh, these are not rules. These are tools, okay? So as always, this, this is not a five-step check mark five-step program to get God to do what you want him to do this is this is not a five-step check mark of how to have a better relationship with your spouse okay uh, but we still are going to look at the contents of Nehemiah's prayer so look at uh, chapter 1 verse 1 it says the words of Nehemiah son of Hakalah in the month of Kislev in the 20th year while I was in the citadel of Susa okay so he's just giving us some context Susa real quick let's put the walls on before we put the roof on uh, Susa is the, uh, the capital of uh, the empire, and so he's in Babylon is where he's writing this from. And he, when he says the 20th year, what we're going to find out is that's the 20th year of Artaxerxes, who's the king of Babylon at this time. Artaxerxes is the son of Xerxes. If you've seen the movie 300, you know who Xerxes is, okay? The movie 300, uh, the... Um, the uh, Spartans go up against uh, the Persians, uh, and Xerxes was who? He was their guy in charge. You remember the dude that was real big, and, and you remember that? And Gerard Butler came and beat him up. Yeah, okay. So uh, Artaxerxes is Xerxes' son. Uh, verse 2, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned him about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. So again, this is still just context. Um, Nehemiah is in Babylon, and one of Nehemiah's brothers or cousins or relatives have, have gone to visit Israel, okay, which is about a four or five month journey, about 700 miles away. He's gone to visit the other Israelites that have already gone there in the years past. You remember, led by Zerubbabel and led by Ezra. And his brother or cousin returns, and Nehemiah says, Hey, how's everyone doing? Nehemiah says, Tell me about. Tell me about the, he, the exiles. He says, tell me about the Jewish remnant. Tell me about Jerusalem. I hear they rebuilt the temple. Like, tell me about it. He says, I, I hear Ezra showed up and he had to slap them around and Ezra had to teach them the law again. I heard that Ezra had to teach them Hebrew again. Tell me, how are the people doing? Right? Because he's, he's excited. He's heard all these things. And then verse 3, they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province that's back in Israel are in great trouble 
and, and disgrace. And then he says why? The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. So this is not the news I imagine Nehemiah was wanting to hear. Okay? And then his response, verse 4, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So I just want to point this out again. We're just kind of setting the context. Nehemiah hears this, this news about his people. He hears the news about God's people. And he is deeply affected. He is deeply burdened. You know, he could have said, oh man, I'll add it to my prayer list, right? He could have said, man, that, that stinks. And, and then he could have thrown out some Christian phrase like, well, it'll, it'll all get better. Or, hey, uh, God's good. Or he could have just thrown out one of those things that we just, that half the time don't even make any sense, but we throw them out anyways just to kind of appease the situation, right? But he is deeply affected. We can see that uh, Nehemiah is what we're going to learn. He's a guy that has very thick skin, but he has a very soft heart, right? And the reason I always emphasize that phrase is because our culture is trying to get you to have a very calloused heart and very thin skin, okay? But please remember, guys, as believers, we are conditioned to and we're supposed to mature into people that our skin is tough. You know what I mean? That like if we're, this is what Jesus says, if we're accepted, if our message is accepted, great. If we're rejected, if outright someone walks up and spits in our face or if someone types something mean about us on Facebook or whatever, do you know what we do? We brush the dust off and what? Move on. Remember, that's what Jesus told his apostles. If you're greeted in a town, wonderful. If not, what do you do? He said, brush the dust off your feet, and then what? Just move on, right? And so this is why we love Nehemiah, because he's got thick skin and a very soft heart, because he's very deeply affected. And it, it makes me wonder, like, am I truly, and if you're writing notes, I'd write this down, if I truly Am I truly burdened for God's people? Like, am I truly burdened for the state of the church? Like, am, am I truly burdened by the indifference of the church? Am I truly burdened that so many people who call themselves believers just, just really don't give a crap about anyone else? Amen. Right? Like, has that truly burdened me? Right, that, that I'm praying for others and that I'm seeking people, like that I'm truly burdened, not like a false burden. You know, you know, on on social media, you know how people will go on and they'll post like a what was it when there's the when there's the attacks in France. You know how everybody put the picture of the 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 what was it the French flag on, right? You know, and then and then when you know uh, or people will put like a a thing of like the Black Lives Matter movement, or you know what I mean, that there's these tragedies that happen, and we, <sighs> I'm trying not to get frustrated, we do this false burden that we just post a picture online, and we say, look how much I care for others, yet we, don't, we do nothing about it. Are y'all follow me on this? That's, that's not true burden for others. That's just, I want to look good, I want to make myself feel better. But Nehemiah was truly, deeply affected uh, by his brothers who were not uh, doing well. And then he starts to pray. And I want to look at his prayer. There's three parts I want to look at his prayer. And I want to point out that the three parts of his prayer stand in direct contrast 
to what our culture tells us about praying. Okay, so number one, look at verse five. He says, then I said, I'm going to read verses five to seven. Oh, Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, your Bible may say the great and terrible God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. So he's saying, God, please, please hear my prayer. And then look at um, the next thing he says. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant uh, Moses. And so this is the first thing I want to point out is the contents of Nehemiah's prayer. Number one is it was confessional. Number one was that he took ownership of his own actions. Like he says it right there. He says, I confess the sins we Israelites, including my Self. I love that he just points out, hey, the situation we're in is because of what? It's because of sin. The situation we find ourselves is because we have just disobeyed, right? This is why in, in New Testament theology, okay, time out. So they're, they're doing the, uh, the walls of Jericho in there today. So the screams are them. So they're not, <laughs> the children are fine. I just, I, I, sorry, I just remember that. <laughs> Okay, my wife is in there, and it, they, she built up these cardboard boxes, and they're, they're marching around the walls of Jericho, and so there's going to be screaming, there's going to be a trumpet, and so they're fine. Anyways, I just heard that as the door opened, I heard some of y'all like, why are the children screaming? Um, okay, what was, uh, what was I saying? Um, oh, he, he says, hey, flat out, hey, the reason we found ourselves in this situation is because we've disobeyed. We've sinned, you know? And so in New Testament theology, what we say a lot is, remember guys, in the New Testament, your sins are completely forgiven by the blood of Jesus on the cross. The wrath of God is completely satisfied, yet we still live with the consequences of our sins. Are you all with me on this? Okay? And so the, the example I always use, and I hope we can laugh because it's silly, is imagine like a, a 10th grade girl, 10th, 11th grade girl, who, who is a believer, who loves Jesus, makes a mistake and ends up pregnant right? And then imagine she comes to you and she says, how could God do this? Okay, the thing I kind of joke is, well, you had something to do with it as well. Let's be fair. And, 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 and to be fair, we don't have to ask for forgiveness because Jesus has forgiven us. However, the consequence of that decision is, you know what? We're going to have a baby in nine months. We got another baby to add to the family of God that we've got to take care of. Right? And so he's pointing out that, hey, he owns their sin. He doesn't deflect it. You remember I said everything about his prayer stands in absolute contrast to our culture. The reason I say that is because in our culture, we live in a completely victim culture where we don't take ownership of anything. Right? In our culture, I am not responsible for anything because I can always, and I, I shouldn't say always, I, I'm taught that I should always be able to deflect any responsibility I have onto someone else. We live in a culture of blame shifting, excuse making, and self-pity. And it, it develops a culture of people, listen to this, who mostly identify with being oppressed. 
or who mostly identify with their brokenness. Does this sound familiar, by the way? You don't have to think very hard for this, right? And you think, hey, where did we get this, man? Genesis chapter 3, you remember chapter 1 and chapter 2, the world's going great. Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man. Satan comes along. Adam is sitting there. Satan tempts Eve. Eve takes a bite of the apple or whatever it was. And then God comes up and says, hey, what happened here? Do you remember what Adam said? What did he do? He said, hey, the the woman you gave me did this. We want to know where do we get this pattern? Man, it it is our pattern from the very start. Like he, he double shifts the blame. Do you see that? Hey, Adam, what happened here? The woman that you gave me did this. What is he doing? He's saying, I'm, the, I'm, I'm shifting blame. And the reason a victim mentality is so destructive is because if you're the victim, you're never responsible for the outcome. Are you with that? If you're the victim of some sort of wrong, you, it, is, it is viewed as if you're not responsible uh, for the outcome. This is why, to my shame, to my shame, there have been times in my life in a soccer game where I'll go in hard on a guy to foul. And, and I'll real, I mean, I lost my temper for a second, I'm being honest. I'll go in hard for a foul. Not dirty, never to hurt someone, but you, some, that's part of the game. Sometimes you gotta stop the pace. I'll go in hard for a foul and I'll realize what I'm doing. And you can hear the, the, the ref's whistle. And do you know what helps? Is if I stay down and hold my leg as well. <laughs> Think about it. Why do we do that? Anyone who's played sports, why do we do that? Because if, if I've been hurt as well, then hopefully that yellow card won't come out. Are you all with me on that? There are some serious, deep psychological issues there of why we do that, right? Anyone played sports? Am I the only one? Am I the only jerk in the room? Don't shake your head yes to the jerk question. Am I the only one that you understand that? Matt, do you get it right? You go in hard and 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 there's there's a split, I mean, an instinctive moment where you say, hey, if I've been hurt as well, the ref is less likely to call a foul on it. That's from Genesis chapter 3, man. The woman you uh, gave me. And look at, um, go to John chapter 5. We do have time for this. Because you may think, oh, Genesis 3, that's just one of those little times that Old Testament, long time ago. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John chapter 5. I've read this story before, but I find it very telling because I think it really speaks to the world right now. I think it really speaks to our culture right now. Because in our culture, man, we place a lot of our identity in our brokenness. You know, in our culture, I think, um, I think we're raising a generation that, that there are kids, and I want to be very sensitive here. I, I don't want to sound like a jerk. And this is coming from a guy who has struggled with and continues to struggle with depression, medically documented. I'm not self-diagnosed for years and, and who have, with brilliant doctors in, in Dallas and Tyler. This is coming with, from a guy through, her year, through years we've tried different medicines and I eat well and I try to exercise, all that stuff, the whole package. So this is coming from this guy. But we're raising a generation that, that I, I believe kids, I sound like such an old person. I believe this next generation knows that they can have a couple buzzwords in their back pocket. And I know that they can, they can uh, really let someone down. And if they pull out this buzzword, everyone will forgive them. You, do you know what I mean? Like some of these buzzwords, and again, please hear my heart on this. Some of these buzzwords are mental health. 
Some of these buzzwords are, I have OCD. Some of these buzzwords are, I struggle with anxiety. And, and, and in our culture, we're kind of creating this generation of, rather than being more than conquerors, we place our identity underneath uh, the, our, this brokenness, right? And, and we have this culture where if I throw out this buzzword, then everybody, instead of holding me responsible, they say, oh my gosh, you poor thing. You poor thing, right? And you may disagree with me. This is my opinion 100%. It's like what Simone Biles did in the, in the dang Olympics. My goodness, she goes on. She's representing the United States, and she's in the middle of a competition. And literally, did y'all see this? literally gets up and walks out and leaves her teammates there. Like literally picks up her stuff in the middle. And then I believe she throws out the, word, the buzzword mental health and suddenly she's a hero. And I'm like, man, you're, you're not a victim of that, right? And even still, you, you never walk away from your team in the middle. I'm like, ah, I take issue with that. That frustrates me. And some people were literally calling her a hero I'm like, just to walk out, and then you can throw out that, that phrase, mental health. And please remember, this is all in the context of, man, I struggle with it. I do. I'm in the fight, but that's not my identity. John chapter 5, uh, verse 1, it says, Sometimes later Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there's in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him. Okay, so pause real quick. Uh, so get the scene here. If, if you are invalid, if you're blind, lame, it's like this is where you go. This is the place you go. Um, to get what you need, okay? And I'm not, I'm not saying if they just had faith, Jesus would make them better. That's the prosperity gospel, okay? I am saying that this man was truly, honestly in this condition. And then Jesus, please note this, Jesus asks him a really, really stupid question. Look what he says. Do you want to get well? Pause for a second. That's a ridiculous question, Right? Here's a guy who's been invalid for 38 years. Now listen, this is a ridiculous question unless Jesus saw this man's heart. And it's ridiculous unless that man had placed his identity in being the sick guy. Are you following me here? If he had placed his identity, hey, I'm the broken one. I, my identity is I'm not more than a conqueror. I live underneath the oppression of this disease. If that was the case, then this question makes complete sense. Does it not? Like Jesus sees the dude's heart and he says, and I think he said it like this, hey bro, do you even want to get well? Because I think honestly, partially he didn't. I think partially he wanted to live underneath this. He wanted to be the victim. Man, and this is our culture by the way, a culture of victims, a culture of I can do nothing to help myself. I mean, and it's, seep, it's a false theology that's seeping into the church as well, is we can sit around sometimes, and this is going to be harsh, sometimes our, our prayer groups, sometimes our small groups become, let's just complain about our lives. Let's just complain about how things aren't going well, rather than looking at one another and saying, bro, you are 
absolutely victorious in Christ. Like there, there, there's, you have, there is no separation between you and God. God has, has given you everything you need in Jesus. And so no matter what your circumstance as a believer, you, are, you have already conquered that circumstance. Are you all following me on this? This will preach, man. Okay? Rather than we sit around and sometimes we feel sorry for ourselves and we just want pity. And sometimes we need to stand up and pick up a sword and fight. We're going to see that in Nehemiah later on too. Okay? He says, do you want to get well? And then look at his answer. He completely dodges the question, sir, the invalid said. <clears throat> what is, look at the words. He says what? I have no one to help me. Who, who's, who's he placing the blame on? Everybody, you could, man, do you see this? Sir, I have no one to help me into the pool and the water stirred while I am trying to get in. Someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, <laughs> he says, get up. And mine has an exclamation point after it. Does y'all's? Get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. And I imagine Jesus, we always imagine Jesus as having 100% compassion, but sometimes he got very frustrated with people. The original Greek really speaks to that better than our English Bibles. I imagine Jesus looks at this guy and says, get up. Like, get up. Take your mat and walk. Like, they're, they're, I imagine there's a, there's a touch of frustration. Like, I, I'm standing. Look who's standing in front of you. Look who's asking, where do you want your heart to be? And your response is, look around and blame others. And he says, get up. Take your mat and walk. This right here stands in complete opposition to our victim culture. Is that I said the first thing of Nehemiah's prayer is that it was confessional. Uh, is that he says, hey, he owns his sin. And he says, we have sinned against you. He doesn't blame anyone else. Uh, go back to Nehemiah chapter 1. Look at verse 8. We'll continue his prayer. Verse 8, he says, what's the first word in verse 8? <clears throat> he says what? Remember. Remember. Speaking to God, he says, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them up from there and bring them to a place where I've chosen as a dwelling for many. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. So the second thing about his prayer is that his prayer looks backwards. Okay, The reason this stands in stark contrast to what our culture prays is most of our prayers look forward. Like Most of our prayers are completely centered on how do I want Jesus to change my future? Are you all following me on this? Most of our prayers, let's be honest for a second, are, hey, Jesus, here's my plan for my life. I need you to change my circumstances so that it's, it's a nice, easy path, right? Most of our prayers, if we're self-reflective, are even focused on, hey, Jesus, here's what I'm going to do for you, by the way. I will never do this again. I will always do that. Anyone gone through the bargaining phase of prayer? It's okay to smile. We've all done it, right? Jesus, I need this. I will never do this thing again. You know, and we're looking forward, trying to make promises of what we're going to do. But in New Testament theology, all of our prayers need to look backwards at the accomplished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, right? And his prayer looks backwards, and he looks back to Moses, and he says, he says Lord, the Israelites are your people, and you are our God. 
notice he doesn't say, hey, can, can you help us out? Hey, we're going to do better. He says, he says, Lord, let me remind you and really let me remind myself of who we are. This is why in the New Testament, over and over and over, the number one message is not, hey, stop sinning, stop sinning, stop sinning. Do you want to know what the number one message in the New Testament is? Is don't forget who you are. You are God's chosen people. This is why when you read most of the New Testament letters, listen to this, most of the New Testament letters are written to Christians and the writer constantly reminds the Christians of the gospel. Have you ever noticed that? That the New Testament is reminding believers of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. This is why I only have two sermons in me. One, two. Number one is to try to convince an unsaved world of their need for Christ. Number two is try to convince a saved church of who they are in Christ. That's it. Those are the only two messages we got. Trying to convince an unsaved world of their need for Jesus. And two, trying to convince the saved church of who they are. Why is that? Because we forget. I love that we sang, Come Thou Fount this morning. One of my favorite lines is, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Did y'all notice that when we sang that? Man, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. I am constantly trying to wander from the truth of who I am in Christ. I am constantly trying to wander back to Jesus, I'm going to do better. I am constantly trying to wander back to works-based relationships. I am constantly trying to wander back to, hey, give me the rules I need in order for my life to work out. I'm constantly doing that, right? The most consistent thing that I bring to the table with my walk with the Lord is how inconsistent I am. That's my consistency. But God is faithful. Uh, Real quick, look at Deuteronomy chapter 4. So head left a little bit. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 4. I want to really kind of hammer in this idea of like our prayer life, guys. We've got to be people that we remember. We look back on, you know. Like that's even why this is silly. But even in here on Sunday mornings, like we need to stop and pray, especially since we were displaced for a couple months. Like, let's pray a prayer of thanksgiving. Like, like this right here. Jesus, thank you for this roof. Right? And listen to this. Jesus, thank you for air conditioning. Right? Right? Jesus, thank you for these cool speakers and for this uh, uh, projector thing. Okay, because remember, guys, for the church, hear me, none of this is necessary. None of this is necessary for the church to flourish. But God gives, and He gives, and He gives. Anyways, Deuteronomy chapter 4, this is when the Israelites, this is way before, are about to enter the promised land. Things are about to go well for them, and uh, Moses gives them this warning. Chapter 4, verse 9, he says, this is Moses speaking to the Israelites. He says, only be careful and watch yourselves closely. Oh, so, so pause there. Stop there. Don't read ahead yet. He's giving them this big warning. Doesn't it sound like he's going to say, hey, there's some troubled dudes over there? Doesn't it sound like he's going to say, be careful because they, they're tough warriors. Be careful. Watch yourselves closely that you stay in great. Look what he says. Watch yourselves closely that you do not forget. 
the things your eyes have seen or let them slip from your heart as long as you live. This is such an important verse for even New Testament theology as well, guys, is that we need to be people of prayer that we're looking back and we do not forget where the Lord has brought us. Man, if you want to live a life of being unthankful, just look to the future constantly. 100% look to the future. Never stop um, and look back. And so, uh, go back to Nehemiah uh, chapter 1. We'll finish this up. The last thing, verse 11, he says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of the king. And so the last thing Nehemiah does is he, point is he points out, hey, this is the prayer of me and who? All of us. Like this prayer, and this is the last thing I'll say about Nehemiah's content of his prayers, that it's shared, okay? Is that it's shared amongst God's people. The reason this stands in stark contrast to our world is because we keep people at an arm's distance, right? Uh, we're very, very reserved about opening up our lives, you know? Um, how often have we done this that we're going through something very difficult? And we honestly, we don't share it with others. But what we do is when God delivers, then we'll say that it worked out. Do you, have you all ever seen this? Right, that, that we rejoice, but only after we've gone through the, the valley of the shadow of death and we've come out on the other side. And like, we don't talk about going through the valley together. Like, we, this is so countercultural. In our culture, you stick to yourself. If there's any difficulties, and guys, I mean in the church, I mean in the church, if there's any difficulties, you tough it out. It's just you and Jesus, you know, it's just me and Jesus, the most unbiblical phrase there is it's just between me and Jesus and and if we come out the other side great or if we tank I'll let you know and this is what I mean um, I'm tired of seeing my friends get divorced I'm tired of it like I've literally had more than one conversation where it's literally hey I'm gonna ask so-and-so for a divorce today and I and I think what what like there has been this valley that they have been walking through and they did it completely alone. And the only time that we hear about it is on the very other side when they've given up. Right? Like God's church is meant to share one another's burdens. Like that when there's difficulty, we need to bring others along. Satan loves to pick out the stray out of the pack. You know that, right? Right? He loves to fight dirty. He loves to find the lone, the, the lone antelope off by itself. And he says, that's an easy target. Like, I can take that one out. You know, it's what lions do. And, and the Bible says Satan is like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, right? The lions never attack the pack. What do they do? They find the singular one out by himself. And they say, that's, that's our one. That's easy prey. And so this is why as believers, like, man, we've got to stay together. Our prayers must be shared. Like our lives, our prayer life is intended to be very personal, but it was never meant to be private. You follow me on that? Very personal, but it was never designed to be private. And so rather than getting the phone call of, hey, I'm getting a divorce with my wife, like we need to give the phone calls of, hey, we're going through a difficult time. And can you pray for me? 
and can we grab a cup of coffee? You know, we need to take responsibility uh, for one another. Um, I, I hope uh, that we learn how to fight dirty against Satan. You know what I mean? That he's coming at us and that, I, that we don't say, hey man, good luck with all that. But that we say, hey, I'm going to come fight with you. You know, if, if you're ever driving along or if I'm driving along and I see you fighting someone on the sidewalk, dude, I'm stopping my car and I'm jumping in. Like I'm with you. Like we're going to double team this dude. You know, like I'm, I've got your back and we need to keep that mind with Satan is that he's trying to have a, a fair fight or really a dirty fair fight because he doesn't fight fair and as believers man there is power when we come together and we share our prayers and we share our life with one another and that's even in our mission statement and I hope that phrase hasn't lost its meaning this idea of being a real community of walking through life together not just talking about the highs and the lows that maybe our prayer requests uh, go beyond that, but that our prayers are communal um, and that we share them with one another. And so um, I'll, I'll finish with this, like I said at the beginning. Again, this is not a checklist of do these three things and Jesus, magic, Jesus, genie in a bottle, answer your prayers. Uh, what this is, is this is saying, hey, this is, we can see these things in Nehemiah's prayer. Um, and it's a great outline of what our prayer life could be to really develop a further intimacy um, with the Lord. And so um, let me, I'll just finish with this. Guys, remember, you're not a victim. You're not, okay? That doesn't excuse any behavior. That doesn't say that if you pray hard enough, you'll get better. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying that through Christ, you are more than conquerors no matter what happens at all and that means no matter if your circumstance or if your situation gets worse which it might that we are still more than conquerors in Jesus because we're not defined by our circumstances we're not defined by our brokenness you know and I imagine Jesus looking you looking you and saying hey are you ready to get better like are you, are you ready to walk in freedom and that doesn't necessarily mean physical healing but it means that our identity is no longer in that thing Right, So let me pray for us. Father, um, I just want to pray like Nehemiah prayed. Lord, I confess. We openly confess, Lord. We confess. Uh, we're just prone to wander. <laughs> Jesus, we're unfaithful. Gosh, we chase so many things, Lord. Thank you for your faithfulness. God, I confess, we, my heart is pulled in so many different ways, Lord. And that's not an excuse to do whatever I want. It's just being honest, Lord. I feel my heart being pulled so many ways. And so I openly confess, Jesus, that oftentimes I have a divided heart. And so thank you that you are faithful. I pray we'd focus on your faithfulness. And Lord, I, I pray that we would look back, that we'd remember whose we are, that we would look back at the cross of Jesus and we'd see that your wrath has been absolutely satisfied and, and that we'd see that in Christ we are completely accepted and completely whole and that this world has nothing on us now. Uh, and then I pray that we would share our lives with each other. I pray that we would share our, our prayers with one another. I pray that we would share the difficult valleys with one another so we could walk through it together. I pray that we would 
stop trying to be isolated. I pray that we would stop blame, uh, shifting, uh, passing the blame. And, and I pray that we would just have our eyes look back occasionally rather than just forward all the time. When we look back, we'll be pretty thankful. We really should of all you provided. And so, Lord, I just pray for this church. I pray for your church, the international church, the one with a big C, God. I pray that, that we would do this, that we would just confess and we'd look back and that we would share, Lord, um, and that we would continue to rest um, in your truth. All of this would be based on your words, not ours. And all of this would be based on the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And so, Lord, that is our prayer today. God, I just, I don't, I'm tired of asking and asking and asking. Lord, I pray we would just say, hey, I'm, we are so thankful for what you've done. Lord, show us how to be thankful. Lord, show us how to be content. Lord, show us how to realize our circumstances may never change. Honestly, our circumstances may get a lot worse. But you have overcome, Lord Jesus. Help us to realize that. Victory is not when things get better. Victory is already here. And that we would find peace and rest no matter the circumstances. I don't know what the world's going to offer in the next year. I think it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. And I pray we wouldn't sit back and wait. But I pray we'd realize you have already delivered, Lord. And so uh, help us to have that mindset, Jesus, and help us to repent of uh, just being afraid. Lord, help us to repent of that. So this is our prayer. Amen.